0: Chasing Quicksilver by Shannon B. Douglas Episode 4 Fishers and Farmers Before embarking directly into a deeper exploration of the psyche, I'm going to share a story and metaphor with you that illustrates some of the ways that consciousness manifests and expresses itself in different people. Consciousness, by the way, is the raw source material of the psyche. It's another way of saying chi or prana, And while souls express themselves in different ways, consciousness is formless. Along the way, in order to understand the psyche, we'll also explore a working definition of what consciousness is and how it's structured. We'll learn how figures like mystics, yogis, and shamans navigate it, and how, with the right practice, you can tap into the transformational energy of the psyche, like a Western alchemist, to understand the great work. We've already brushed up against some of the significant stages and drivers of consciousness. In the last section, we encountered the nature of the psyche in three stages. The caterpillar, the chrysalis, and the butterfly. We learned that these stages are evolutionary and have a directionality towards growth, sometimes called a teleology. In section three, we learned about some of the unconscious structures that keep us from transmuting and transforming ourselves, the ones that haunt the passages of our unconscious. We also learned that there are three prime directives of the unconscious mind, three primal instincts that we all have. Those instincts are to respond to perceived threats, to seek food and energy sources, and to seek reproductive opportunities. To put simply, we have a natural drive towards growth and expansion within us that pushes or pulls us towards enlightenment and a force of inertia that keeps us in patterns and routines, some of which are not as healthy as they could be. If the forces at the level of the unconscious are too calcified and block the flow of energy in our lives, we remain stuck in stages and may miss opportunities to fully mature as human beings. The force that drives us towards growth, new experience, and towards goals of enlightenment is the same force that drove us to surmount the stages of development from the terrible twos when we went from using tantrums to satisfy selfish ego needs to the capacity to recognize the existence and the needs of others and to be able to share when we reached the age of three or four. It's the same force that matured us from hormonal teens with immature brains to the presumably reasonably independent adult that we became in our early to mid-20s. At this stage, our brains reach biological maturity. Our prefrontal cortex is taking a larger role in interpreting our worlds and we become capable of transcending our impulsivity and understanding the consequences of our actions and choices. The force of inertia is the force of stability that keeps us safe and secure. It protects our families, communities and societies with rules and order, and it's the counterpoint to the growth drive. When our unconscious is operating in response to perceived threats, the evolutionary force that drives towards growth is suspended and we can't grow. Some people talk about nervous system function here. The capacity to be creative and to grow and to evolve exists within the parasympathetic nervous system, when we feel safe and secure. The sympathetic nervous system is where the response pattern exists which bind us. The pattern responses to perceived danger that run at an unconscious level. These forces are yin and yang, expansion and contraction, inhalation and exhalation. We have also learned that metaphors and symbols found in myths, like the myths of monsters in the maze, are more important than just made-up stories and fictions. They are representations of psychic structures. As we continue our journey, we will meet a titan and learn about the language of the gods and about the role of heroes within our psyches in ways that were simply not taught in school. Mythology has been taught to us as a dead subject for a very long time. As such, it's a glimpse into what people supposedly worshipped in the past, but these presuppositions and beliefs are rooted in the architecture and the grammar of monotheistic belief structures that, is, that we have inherited in the West. The assumption being that people who came before us worshipped their gods in the same way that Christians, Jews, and Muslims worshipped their god. And this is not simply not the case. The monotheistic framework puts God, Jesus, and the Holy Scripture outside of us. The frameworks we will examine recognize the influence of the gods within us and through us, as well as their pervasive expressions in the natures of things and people around us. This segment is allegorical. It's a microcosm of the structures we will explore together as the chapters ahead unfold and as we dig deeper into the big questions together About the nature of the soul and the path to enlightenment. In many ways, I've also approached this story like the Superman comic book, with features and aspects exaggerated so that they stand out in the minds of readers. The story begins when I was a young boy. I'm the oldest of three children in my family, and my father worked in the mining and refining industries. He held roles that drew him to projects around the world throughout our childhood. By the time I was in 8th grade, I'd changed schools or school programs a dozen times, and I believe this helped me form a permanent perspective of culture shock, because I was always the outsider looking in. I never settled on a favorite sports team or on on a sport, for example, because as I moved from place to place, it just seemed like most people simply cheered for the home team because that's the team with whom they identified. I saw that people attached social identities to regional sports teams just because of geography. In Toronto, baseball was the thing within my cohort, but in Vancouver, it was football. In the Canadian prairies, it was hockey. In Australia, the, the exotic sport was American basketball. This was the same with religions. We variously attended Anglican, Lutheran, and other Protestant churches as I grew up and I was exposed significantly to others, including Catholicism and even Jehovah Witnesses. I found the tribal identifications of various groups to be arbitrary and self-serving, and it puzzled me to hear from each of the different denominations that being a member of their church was the only way to get to heaven. The awareness of these kinds of tribal allegiances and the dangerous consequences of it were rooted in my consciousness at an early age. As I moved from place to place, it was like reincarnating into a new life, leaving cultures and subcultures behind while learning to navigate new social frameworks, values, and languages in the new place. In one incarnation during the early years of the presidency of the authoritarian strongman Augusto Pinochet in Chile, I was a little gringo attending a small-town school on the coast in that country. It was a time of political division, And in a microcosmic expression of that division, perhaps, I became the flashpoint of a rumble between the fisher children and the farmer children of the town. It happened on the last day of classes at the end of my second grade. The little town had grown there because of the beautiful coastline, a bountiful ocean and some naturally sheltered harbors for the fishing boats. It was also a beautiful and bountiful oasis microclimate, and even in the Atacama Desert, there were perfect conditions to grow Mediterranean crops like olives, artichokes, and peppers. We came to this little town in Chile because my father was working on an iron ore shipping facility there, along with professionals from Canada, the U.S., Germany, and South Africa. All of the foreign workers, the expats, lived in a gated compound with servants and chauffeur services, while the people in the town lived in simple homes or barrios. We were the only expat family whose children went to the local school to be educated in Spanish with the local children. In the mornings, I'd put on my uniform and my Adidas shoes and sneak out of the gated compound through a small gap in the wall. My path took me through the neighborhoods of the farmers, and I would call on my friends, one after the other, gathering a small group together on our way to school. The farming culture and the fishing culture in town were divided. They each lived in different neighborhoods, and they existed on different schedules and values. The fishers lived by the moon and the tides and on the cycles of the ocean. The farmers, on the other hand, lived by the sun and by the growing season and plant cycles at the edge of the southern tropics. These differences were enough to divide the town children into us-and-them groups, perhaps like the divisions that exist in classic mid-century American fictions about the prep kids and the shop kids. This division was like the people from that literature divided against each other by railroad tracks or by social class. Regardless of where they lived and what they did within the economy of the town, the kids at the school were all descended from the original Spanish settlers and perhaps also, I like to imagine, from the last of the mysterious Incas of the Atacama. Many traced their family histories back hundreds of years on the coast. Everyone had jet-black hair, brown eyes, and a Mediterranean complexion, and this was the cause of my celebrity. Besides being the only kid at school who wasn't a fisher or a farmer, my hair was so blonde it was almost white, and I was the only child with blue eyes that anyone had ever seen. I stood out everywhere I went and attracted a lot of attention. On my first day of school, the school clerk Hermes took me on a tour to introduce me as the new student. He was a high-strung individual, often carried his guitar on a strap around his shoulder, and he danced us from the first grade classroom to the twelfth grade classroom in a rapid succession. As we went, Hermes composed a song in Spanish to introduce me to all the children and the teachers. I had no idea what he was saying, but the teachers smiled and the students laughed at the same parts of the song every time, and everyone cheered when he was done." Finally, he brought me back to my classroom, and as the year went by, the children became used to me, and I got to know the language, the school, and the routines. Besides my regular teacher, there were five administrators at the school who taught, guided, and coached students in specialized activities. The principal was a jovial man and made his rounds to all the classes, teaching optimism and potential encouraging the students to push their boundaries and reach toward achievement. The vice principal was all about the rules and discipline and enforced order and neatness. The activity coach was a competitor who taught sports and gamesmanship, while the counselor was the master of the soft skills, relationship advice, and health. The school clerk was the last of the five. He carried his guitar on a strap, danced his way around the school, and variously taught drama, music, and oratory skills the day of the rumble between the fishers and the farmers, we were celebrating the graduation of the students from the 12th grade. This was during the time of the reign of Augusto Pinochet, and we all marched down the main street in town wearing our school uniforms, singing the nationalistic songs we'd learned throughout the year. After the parade, we all met for an assembly and an awards presentation in the school courtyard. The clerk played the role of master of ceremonies, and he punctuated his sing-song introductions of the administrators with chords on his guitar, one by one. When he handed the podium over, he scurried around, talking to the teachers, to the parents, and to the students, sometimes clowning around in between segments to the point of distracting from the presentation. The principal gave a bombastic speech about how much everyone had grown in the year and what they'd all accomplished, and he took extra time to focus on the grade 12 class. Almost one-third of the senior class was leaving for trade training and academic advancement in the city an hour away, and some were even heading to the universities in the cities to the north, much farther aflung. He spared no ebullience as he fawned over them. The vice principal, the person who kept everything organized and running at the school, became agitated that the principal was getting carried away. And when the principal realized that the VP was in a state, he stopped mid-sentence and surrendered the stage. The VP then gave a checklist to all the teachers and reminded everyone to make sure that their desks were all cleaned out before leaving for summer holidays. She then presented the awards for the hardest working student and the award for perfect attendance. And then, right on schedule, she handed the podium to the coach and the counselor. The coach gave out awards for the winners in the competitive categories of sports and achievement. The children were recognized for their bravery, competitive spirits, and for winning their races. The counselor recognized students for community building, cooperation, and congeniality. On national holidays like the day of our parade, Augusto Pinochet's fiery speech colored the psychic landscapes of the national identity with black and white thinking. This kind of speech was fairly common, and when we were in places where there were TVs, which was very infrequently, it was normal to hear him pumping up his supporters, similarly to what the current president of the United States has been doing, emphasizing the difference between us and them. Under Pinochet, intellectuals, dissidents, and student protesters were disappearing from Santiago and Valparaiso. As expats working on infrastructure projects, we were definitely outsiders and didn't have anything to worry about from the secret police. But if you were a Chilean, there was definitely a right way and a wrong way of being a citizen. And the entire apparatus of the education system was co-opted with devotional training to the strongman. We were being trained as young children in national pride and patriotism and loyalty to the president. After the parade and after the assembly, each classroom hosted a display of the children's work, much of which was themed in nationalistic images. All the children took time to go from classroom to classroom to see what each of the grades had learned that year and what crafts and displays they had each made. Each classroom was filled with the displays, divided between the work of the fishers and the work of the farmers. And after the full tour, whether organically or by some design, a giant game of capture the flag evolved. Fishers against farmers. And even though it was a flag that was the object of the game, for some reason I became the blonde, blue-eyed mascot that each of the fishers and farmers tried to bring onto their team. It's possible that the microcosm I experienced that day was just kids being kids. There evolved an effort to convince me to leave the farmers' team and join the fishers' team. It's also possible that, even though I didn't understand it as a child, that the maze monsters and deep-rooted cultural friction between the fishers and farmers triggered similar defense mechanisms in groups as in our own individual consciousness triggers within us. On the day of the rumble, I became the subject of intense lobbying from both the fisher kids and the farmer kids, as if the game had become win the gringo instead of capture the flag. This generated some internal conflict for me, and it became clear to the fisher kids who were trying to convince me to change allegiances, and to the farmer kids who were lobbying for me to stay with them, that this was an escalating situation. Soon the school clerk was involved winding up the kids with stranger and stranger ideas about why I should be a fisher, Instead of a farmer. This began to draw a crowd. And when my farmer friends realized what the fishers were doing, trying to capture my allegiance, several of the older kids stepped forward with me. It became clear the leader of the fisher kids, with mads at his side, was willing to say anything he could, including making up ridiculous lies about how horrible farmers were just to win the gringo. And soon the farmer kids were playing the same emotional and mental tug-of-war with my friendship. This descended into a pushing match between two of the senior students as the insults grew to be too much. In seconds, as more and more students jumped in, the original reason for the escalation was forgotten and spit and fists were flying as the school courtyard became dusty and dank in the brawl. It's normal for a child to encounter and to hold a tribal consciousness, just like it's normal sometimes for teenage boys to solve problems using nonverbal methods are natural stages of development. I couldn't tell you if it was normal for me to encounter an existential question like I did at the age of seven, but the idea of choosing sides based on trying to sort out the lies and distortions between these two groups seemed wrong. And so did the opportunity of convenience where I could simply choose to be on the winning team. In spite of so many people taking the game of convincing me so seriously, I couldn't bring myself to choose one over the other. I was unsure of who I was, but I was seemingly able to understand and to be friends with both the fishers and the farmers, and I couldn't understand their hatred of each other. By the time we arrived in Chile in the first place, we had already moved a few times because of my father's work, and I'd been exposed to enough different cultures and climates to see the different people express themselves in different ways. When my parents announced that we were moving from the rural prairies in Canada, to coastal Chile, they gave me an illustrated book about different cultures around the world. Each page was dedicated to a description of children in a different country. It listed the languages spoken, the religions people practiced, and the games that children played. The illustrations depicted children as representations of the national character by almost caricaturizing the types of clothing people wore and the toys they played with. The differences and similarities between people fascinated me, and I read the book many times in my early years as we moved from place to place with my father's career. People familiar with the kinds of large-scale infrastructure projects that draw people like my father and his colleagues to places like this small town in Chile know, too, about the collegial rivalries that exist between professions who come together for projects like this. The relationship between engineers and geologists is a notorious one, for example, and one could almost draw a comic book character of the engineer and the geologist and represent them in a book like the one I had as a child about the children of different countries. The engineer-geologist rivalry is a mining thing, perhaps, but it's illustrative of different minds and different ways of thinking. These differences, perhaps, are like those between the minds and values of farmers and the minds and values of fishers. These differences in ways of seeing, experiencing, and interpreting the world are common in our lives, even within single cultural frameworks. And as we move beyond single cultural frameworks, the differences become more and more pronounced. The broader our vantage point, the greater the apparent differences become between religions languages and customs. Within our own cultural context, we have all kinds of diverse views and experiences, like geologists and engineers. Others, like accountants, entrepreneurs, lawyers, and artists, have their unique ways of thinking as well, all different from each other. These different patterns of experiencing and of interpreting the world are flavors of mundane consciousness. Engineers have different sets of lenses through which they view and analyze the world, and they have a different way of expressing themselves in their work than a geologist does. They both have a different way of engaging with the world than an artist does. Though our society is made of many different people with many, many ways of thinking, we generally don't see conflicts or hostilities between different people unless the unconscious defense mechanisms of protective tribal instincts gets involved and we enter the stark no-man's land of black-and-white thinking, unresolved historical differences, and irrational fears. Community fatbergs. Usually, these tribal issues are rooted in topics we consider too impolite for conversation, like race or politics or sex and religion. These are highly emotional areas for people where we find the highest likelihood of encountering unstable or competing psychic fields whose collective instincts unchecked are to protect a territory, even a psychic or cultural territory, from the incursion of the other. We're seeing those issues today in the age of rising global populism, race, gender, and religious issues are energizing various expressions of the tribal defense mechanisms in our society. We see the childish simplicity with which people shut off their individual capacity to use reason, discernment, and critical thinking as they plug into the propaganda of hatred and division, and as they regress into the psychic field of tribal defense mechanisms and the monsters of the collective unconscious, the collective tribal mind. As long as we've had the ability to ask any of the big questions, like, what is the soul? We've struggled to come to an answer that we can all agree on because we often confuse our language and spiritual nomenclature with actual spiritual practice and experience. If the experience of God or transcendence or enlightenment is beyond words, beyond descriptions, and beyond language itself, as so many cultures suggest, then it's foolish to argue over what names we use to refer to deity or to engage our tribal defenses to insist we're right. All too often as human beings, we tribally claim ownership over the name we use for God, instead of recognizing that the nature of the soul and the nature of consciousness transcends cultural and religious identities. These conflicts have driven tribal and religious wars and genocides for thousands of years because at its root, the answer is connected to our identities and our proprietary ideas about the nature of God. Most people exist in the world accepting the framework of reality belonging to their team and according to their own limited views. They view the other team with suspicion, hostility, and even hatred. All of this is rooted in our basic archetypal makeup, and our biological survival instincts. We see in this modern age that the divides between these teams are becoming more and more entrenched in the political world where each side has stopped listening to the other, and where a few voices are willing to say and to do anything to convert people to their team or win against each other at any cost. We see the instinctual protective mechanisms of the collective group unconscious flare under these circumstances. Writing about the psyche and about consciousness and about the soul for a general audience is not an easy undertaking for this reason. The examination has to be made from an outside perspective. I learned the phrase cultural deconstructionism when I reached university and I realized I'd been practicing it since I was a child. My gringo mind was able to see the extent to which the fishers and the farmers were willing to go in order to win my allegiance. I was able to see the dysfunctional tribal defense mechanisms kick in. My experiences of moving from culture to culture as I grew up gave me the tools to be able to see these behaviors from a neutral viewpoint. Sometimes, if we accept that human individuals and human societies have an evolutionary nature... We have to get outside of our own psychic frameworks in order to understand that there are larger forces at work. We need to see the commonalities between us instead of the differences. The alternative is to remain within the limited minds of our tribes, unable to see that there are other patterns and structures of the psyche from our own.